This audio presentation was pre-recorded and edited for brevity and clarity. Hello, I'm Michael Buckley with the Bright Focus Foundation. Welcome to today's Bright Focus chat, what's new in AMD. If today's your first time joining us, welcome. Give you a brief overview of who we are and what we'll do today. The Bright Focus Foundation is a nonprofit based in Maryland. We fund some of the top researchers in the world. These are scientists that are trying to find cures uh, and better treatments for macular degeneration, glaucoma, and Alzheimer's. And what we try to do with the chat and with materials on our website is to share the latest updates uh, from, from science and, and best practices in medicine with families that are impacted by these diseases. So uh, in addition to today's chat, you can learn more at brightfocus.org. What we do in the chat is we have an opportunity to talk to some of the top researchers and, uh, and, and other experts in the field of macular degeneration. Let me tell you about today's guest. Uh, it's, it's Dr. Joshua Denaeff from the University of Pennsylvania Medical Center in Philadelphia. Uh, if the name sounds familiar, he's been a frequent guest uh, at the Bright Focus Chats and has written some really helpful uh, articles uh, for, for the website, brightfocus.org. And he is uh, one of the leading experts on macular degeneration, particularly the, the, the you know, the uh, development of, of uh, possible treatments and, and things that could lead to cure. So uh, Dr. Neff's a great person to kick off the new year with a, a very simple question, and that's what's new in AMD. So uh, Dr. Neff, welcome. Thank you very much, Michael. Good to be back with you and happy to get some information out to patients. Great. Yeah, January is the time where uh, a lot of people kind of take stock of where where things are and how far we've come and what's left to go. So kind of in that vein, almost a state of the union, like how would you compare where we are with AMD diagnosis and treatment and new research? How do you think we are now in January, 2022 compared to how things were maybe five, 10, 15 years ago? Sure. Uh, we've come a long, long way. So back when I started seeing patients with macular degeneration in the year 2000, we really didn't have much to offer uh, other than some laser treatments that didn't work that well. And then in about 2005, we uh, got Lucentis and Avastin, and these are drugs that we can inject into the eye uh, to slow the progression of wet macular degeneration and sometimes even reverse it and get patients better vision. Uh, and then uh, in about five years later, we got ILEA, which can be given somewhat less frequently than Lucentis and Avastin in, in many patients. A lot of patients complain about the frequency of uh, injections in the eye, understandably. And one goal for all these years has been to decrease the frequency of injections, but still get the same benefit. And there are some interesting developments in that that uh, we can get to a little bit later when we talk about some, some newer treatments. Uh, but I think that has been the major advance uh, over the past uh, 15, uh, 20 years. There are also patients who suffer from uh, the advanced form of dry macular degeneration, which is called geographic atrophy. And uh, there are some treatments that look are looking promising for that form of macular degeneration too. Uh, we're not quite there yet, but I think we may have something coming along even later this year. 
that's being reviewed by the FDA. Uh, in terms of um, diagnosis, the imaging technologies for macular degeneration have improved dramatically. Well, we now have this imaging device called OCT, Optical Coherence Tomography. Uh, patients who go in for their uh, visits every month or every few months, I'm sure are familiar with that. It's a way that we, we can um, scan the, the retina and get a cross-section view uh, at very high resolution. And uh, that can show us what's going on in the retina. This OCT uh, lets doctors and patients look carefully at what's going on in the retina and seeing if there's any sign of wet macular degeneration, uh, any fluid accumulating in the retina, uh, and also if there's any uh, atrophy or expansion of, uh, of geographic atrophy uh, in the uh, advanced dry form of the disease. Uh, so we really have a lot more in the way of therapies than we, than we did about uh, 15, 20 years ago, and also a lot more in the way of uh, imaging for, for diagnosis. Well, that's great. Now you really paint a, a really encouraging uh, situation, a lot, of, a lot of progress and some, some good hope for the future. And before we turn to some of the, the specific um, uh, things coming down the road for the, those areas you mentioned, I just want to start off with a really uh, a, a nice question from one of our listeners that I think will help get everybody uh, oriented. And this listener writes, what causes AMD? Yeah, really good question. Uh, very complicated. We've been working on this for decades, including uh, in my laboratory. And uh, what, what we know uh, causes AMD is, well, first of all, age. It's age-related macular degeneration. Very unusual to see this in someone younger than 55, but quite common in people uh, as, as they uh, age beyond uh, 55 uh, among people 80 and older, about 25% of the population has AMD. So it's uh, a gradual breakdown of the, uh, of the proteins and lipids in the retina. We, we think that involves oxidative stress, uh, which is when free radicals damage molecules in the retina over time, and these are not replaced and uh, they they aggregate, they, they form uh, clumps and debris. And some of this debris is actually visible uh, to the ophthalmologist on, a, on, on an eye exam and in an OCT. We call this drusen. Uh, drusen is a German word that means pebble. And it's as if patients had little pebbles of debris accumulating underneath the retina. And the number of drusen and the size of drusen and give us an idea of the risk for vision loss in the future. Uh, smoking increases oxidative stress and free radicals. So for anybody who's still smoking, it's very helpful to try your hardest to stop to uh, decrease the risk of macular degeneration. Oxidative stress also is influenced by diet. So people who eat a diet that's very rich in plants like green leafies, uh, fruits uh, of all different colors, and decrease their oxidative stress. Uh, inflammation and the uh, abnormal activity of the immune system 
also plays a role in the disease. We see evidence of immune cells going into the retina and uh, thinking that the retina is like an invader and attacking it. Uh, so strategies to reduce inflammation are also going to be important in uh, preventing vision loss from macular degeneration. Uh, drugs are being developed to, uh, to inhibit inflammation. And again, we can get into that a little bit later when we talk about new treatments. Uh, but again, this diet that's rich in uh, plant-based uh, whole foods uh, and uh, actually fatty fish twice a week like salmon can uh, decrease inflammation. Uh, in fact, in, in a study uh, that uh, I recently did with my brother, who's an internist, we found that patients who eat, ate a uh, plant-rich diet could decrease their levels of C-reactive protein, or CRP, which is a blood test measure of inflammation. And uh, this could happen uh, quite rapidly. And I think that's going to reduce the risk of, I think that's going to, I think that's going to reduce the risk of, um, of, of uh, macular degeneration because high levels of CRP are associated with increased risk of macular degeneration. Another thing associated with uh, risk for macular degeneration is genetics. So my patients have often asked me if I have macular degeneration, are my children necessarily going to get it? The answer is no, uh, but they are at increased risk. So it's a combination of genetics and environment that uh, causes macular degeneration. Uh, you know, we're, there's nothing we can do about our genetics, but we can modify our environment, our lifestyle, and that can still uh, reduce the risk if, if we do certain things that I started talking about to, uh, to, to improve our uh, healthy lifestyle. The, the genes that are associated with macular degeneration, again, are related to inflammation. Uh, so that supports the idea that abnormal activation of the immune system is uh, promoting the uh, development of macular degeneration and the progression and calming down the immune system. Uh, is going to help protect vision, Michael. Well, that's great. And I think that the complexity of the disease, as you outlined, makes the recent and upcoming progress, I think, even more even more impressive. And um, Dr. Denae, if I want to start with the, the dry AMD, the geographic atrophy, am I correct that there is currently no effective treatment for geographic atrophy? And is that is that true? And is there are there upcoming reasons for hope in that area? Yeah, that is true. There's uh, no FDA-approved treatment for geographic atrophy. Uh, what we can do currently is uh, monitor the progression and let patients know um, how it's coming along uh, and also give low vision aids. So there are optometrists who specialize in, uh, in patients with macular degeneration. They're called uh, low vision uh, optometrists and they can provide special lights and reading glasses and magnifiers that help patients with geographic atrophy use the vision that they still have. Now, there are some drugs that are in the pipeline that could potentially be approved as early as this year. So there's one from a company called Apelis called APL2, um, and there's another one 
from uh, called Zimora. Uh, these drugs were shown in uh, phase uh, uh, two and phase three, uh, even advanced clinical trials, to reduce the the rate of uh, expansion of geographic atrophy. So what what happens in geographic atrophy is there's a little patch of uh, atrophy in in the center of the retina and the macula. And that will expand over time if it's uh, untreated. So the patient will have a blind spot or several blind spots that will enlarge over time. And uh, this drug, which inhibits a component of the immune system called complement, uh, will slow the rate of progression by somewhere around 20%. Uh, and now that's not, uh, it doesn't sound like a, a huge reduction, um, and it, it's not, but it's, uh, it's, it's a start. It's, it's better than um, the, uh, just leaving it alone for, for, uh, for many patients. Um, it does require an injection in the eye of this drug every, uh, every month or two. So patients and their doctors, if it is approved, are going to have to have a conversation about whether uh, they want to have this injection to uh, to somewhat slow the uh, the rate of progression. Uh, so the Apalis drug has been through phase three, and uh, the FDA is looking at it. Um, it may or may not be approved because in one trial uh, it did uh, slow the progression by about 20 percent. In the other trial, it was only 12 percent, and the FDA may think that's not enough to approve it. So we'll see what, uh, what the FDA does, I think, in a few months. Um, the uh, other drug that inhibits complement called Zimora is a little bit further behind in its clinical trials. We don't have uh, phase three uh, definitive clinical trial results yet, but I think we will have them by the middle of this year. So we'll see if uh, maybe that one slows geographic atrophy progression by uh, by more than uh, than the Apellus drug did, and hopefully that one can uh, become FDA approved. But I think even more important than uh, than the fact that these drugs are are being tested and seem to be coming along is that uh, this is going to open the door to uh, future treatments that can be tried and improved upon, just as the vet, uh, vet, the um, wet macular degeneration drugs have been over the years. And I think in the coming five to 10 years, we're going to see even better and more effective drugs coming along for geographic atrophy. Well, that's great. Uh, are you ready to pivot to wet AMD, or is there more you want to add on the, the dry and geographic atrophy? Yeah. So with, with wet AMD, uh, there's an exciting new drug uh, called Farisimab. Uh, that uh, was recently uh, finished its, its advanced uh, phase three clinical trials, and uh, the results look very good. Uh, the goal of this, this drug is to decrease the frequency of injections for patients with wet macular degeneration. You know, many patients need an injection every month or every two months, but with farisimab, half of the patients in the clinical trial we're able to do uh, just as well with injections every four months compared to ILEA every two months. Uh, wow. So I think for many people, this is going to uh, lead to quite an improvement in their quality of life, having uh, 
less frequent injections. The, the uh, furisimab uh, targets the same uh, protein as uh, ILEA and Lucentis and Avastin called VEGF, which is kind of a fertilizer for blood vessels. Uh, but in addition, furisimab uh, targets another protein that works with VEGF called uh, ANG2 or angiopoietin 2. Uh, so this, this double targeting is uh, probably what makes this drug uh, even, even more effective and able to be given uh, less frequently. That's great. In the six or seven year history of the Bright Focus Chats, the number one most asked question is when will there be an alternative to the injections? So this is certainly uh, providing some uh, so, some hope in that direction. Um, it's just you know, I know you, as someone who's you've been a, a, a top someone's a top researcher in this field, could you sort of give our audience just a brief overview of the journey? Like when someone gets a grant from Bright Focus or the National Institute of Health, what's that journey from that moment to something that could be used in a doctor's office? I was wondering if you could just kind of give a brief overview of how it how that how it happens. Yeah, good question, Michael. Um, so, so the first thing that has to happen is um, some increased understanding of the mechanism of the disease so we know what to target. And uh, that understanding can come from genetic studies, uh, studies of um, uh, eyes uh, of, of, of patients that we get through uh, imaging, uh, like OCT. Uh, which I mentioned before. Um, and then uh, some patients will, um, will donate their eyes um, after they've passed away. And those can be, uh, can be studied to determine what happened, what went wrong uh, in the retina. Uh, and there are a lot of uh, methods involving analyzing DNA and proteins and uh, looking at the, the structure of the retina at a uh, microscopic level that can give us clues about uh, what caused the disease. Uh, there are also these new techniques that are referred to as omics. And um, with, with omics, we can look at uh, thousands of proteins or fats or uh, changes in, uh, in genes uh, all at once and um, ask in an unbiased way uh, what has changed in, in this disease. Uh, so omics can also identify some potential targets. Then once we have uh, targets or pathways that have been identified, we can test drugs that, that can change uh, those pathways. And we'll often test those uh, first in uh, retinal cells grown in little plastic dishes uh, and then um, uh, we'll, we'll test them in mice uh, and then uh, eventually move, move to uh, clinical trials, phase one, two, and three. Uh, phase one is mainly for uh, testing safety. Uh, phase two is safety with a, a hoping for a little bit of uh, proof of efficacy. And then phase three is, is really the definitive trial that's going to test whether it's effective uh, and, and also still uh, safe. Uh, so it, it's quite a journey. Um, it, it, takes, uh, it takes a village, as, as they say, uh, 
a lot of um, researchers working together uh, internationally, uh, attending inter international meetings, uh, these days largely uh, virtual meetings, uh, and uh, uh, funding from uh, uh, the National Institutes of Health and uh, foundations like uh, Bright Focus is, is critical for making this happen. Uh, this, uh, this is uh, expensive and uh, long-term work. Uh, and then um, once, once uh, drugs are, uh, are tested, uh, in, in usually in, in mice, uh, pharmaceutical companies will start to uh, invest in them uh, and uh, help to develop them and test them through clinical trials. Uh, so there's a, uh, a partnership uh, among researchers, uh, patients, foundations, and uh, ultimately uh, pharmaceutical companies to get these uh, drugs to patients. Wow, thanks. That's quite a uh, quite an extensive journey, and I can I can understand why. Uh, yeah, things uh, either take some time or don't always pan out, but I think it's it just gives even more reason for hope. Um, over the things that you've that you've outlined for us today, and before we turn to a couple of listener questions, I was wondering you know, over the last couple of years what you and your colleagues um, at the Penn Medical Center uh, have you had sort of observations about how how uh, folks with with low vision and um, are are coping during the pandemic, or you know, kind of you and your colleagues, like what are you what are you observing, or is there sort of advice that you think would be would be helpful, particularly you know we're in the second, third pandemic winter now, and it's a, it's a tough time, I think, particularly for folks with low vision. So I was wondering, what do you, what do you, you know, what are the doctors at Penn Medicine, what are they seeing uh, in their patients? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's made, COVID has made things harder for everybody in, in many ways, and Penn uh, uh, and, and other hospitals have, have uh, uh, made great efforts to, to keep things safe. Uh, for patients, uh, requiring uh, masking for doctors and patients and shielding and uh, social distancing. And, uh, and I've been very happy to see um, how, how uh, patient care has been uh, delivered uh, safely. Um, patients, of course, are, uh, are, are uh, more isolated now. Uh, Needing needing to uh, avoid getting COVID, especially in the older group that's more susceptible to, uh, to COVID uh, problems. Uh, so it's always uh, important to stay connected as as much as possible uh, using using Zoom, um, using uh, outdoor uh, uh, meetings uh, at at uh, safe distance. Uh, AMD support groups exist and um, are centered at uh, a number of, um, of, of hospitals and uh, universities. And uh, these can have some online meetings that, that can enable uh, patients with macular degeneration to talk about the uh, issues that affect them uh, in common. It's also uh, important to keep exercising and eating well. Uh, as I mentioned before, these uh, lifestyle, uh, healthy lifestyle can help to uh, protect vision and reduce the risk of vision loss in the future. And another um, issue that can affect the mental health of uh, AMD patients 
is um, visual hallucinations. Uh, so this is um, something that can affect people who've lost a fair amount of vision. Um, they, uh, they may see uh, patterns like wallpaper uh, or, or even animals or, or people. Uh, this, is, this is pretty common. It's even got a name. It's hmm. called Charles Bonnet syndrome. And um, it doesn't mean that the patients are, are going crazy. They, they think that they are because they associate visual hallucinations with a psychiatric problem, but it's not. It's, um, it's kind of like a phantom limb situation where wow. if somebody uh, unfortunately loses, a, loses an arm or a leg, they'll still have the sensation that the limb is there. Uh, the brain still thinks it's there. Um, so what happens when somebody loses a lot of central vision is the brain is it's kind of bored in a way, and it, and it'll make up uh, images for the uh, to replace the lack of input that that it's now not getting anymore from the damaged retina. Uh, so it has nothing to do with um, with mental health. It's it's just. Um, you know, this, the, the, the brain substituting these images uh, for the lack of input from, from the eye. Um, so I think once patients understand that, uh, they, they feel a lot more comfortable that they're, you know, they're not going crazy. They're, um, this, is, this is just a normal, uh, normal phenomenon that uh, occurs. And uh, sometimes the patterns can even, they get used to them, you know, these, these uh, visual hallucinations that wow. they see. Oh, no, thanks. It's good. That's, I think that's probably new information to a lot of people. Uh, we have several questions from our audience today concerning vitamins. Um, just sort of lump the questions together. Kind of, they all center around what's the role for vitamins, and they hear that there's different brand names when they go in the store. So, could you kind of give our audience some some guidance about the 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 best role for vitamins in AMD? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the NIH uh, sponsored some large clinical trials looking at whether antioxidant vitamins could reduce the risk of macular degeneration uh, progression. And uh, these studies were called the Age-Related Eye Disease Studies, or AREDS. Uh, there were two of them, uh, AREDS-1 and AREDS-2. AREDS-2 modified the formula a little bit. And uh, Remarkably, uh, it showed that in patients with early macular degeneration, uh, patients with drus and those little uh, white spots that the ophthalmologist can see in the in the retina, taking uh, AREDS two vitamins reduces the risk of progression to wet macular degeneration by about twenty five percent. So, taking these vitamins is recommended for patients who have a certain number of drusen. Uh, these can be purchased in the drugstore without a prescription, uh, and you ask what brand. Uh, look for um, a bottle that says AREDS2 Formula, um, and the brand that I recommend, I have no um, financial interest in this, is um, called Preservision, made by Bausch & Lomb, because that one has been actually tested by the NIH to confirm that it contains what it's supposed to contain. Uh, you have to be careful about vitamins because they're not regulated like drugs, and um, uh, sometimes they don't actually have the ingredients that are uh, listed on the label. Uh, so these, these I have confidence in that 
uh, Bausch and Lomb Preservation uh, AREDS 2 formula. Well, that's great. Thanks. I know that the vitamin world can be can be a little overwhelming sometimes, so I, I appreciate that. We have a, a few questions that ask uh, the, the different uh, treatments and the ones that are very promising that you mentioned. Do any of them have the possibility to restore vision that's been lost uh, across the, the field of AMD? Most of them are, are probably going to slow or ideally stop the progression of vision loss. Uh, for patients with wet AMD who have a lot of uh, fluid that's leaked into the retina, uh, drying up that fluid uh, with the drugs that we currently have actually can improve vision uh, pretty quickly within a couple of weeks in uh, some fraction of patients who start uh, these, these injections, and it's about 30 or 40% will experience actual improvement in their vision once they start these, uh, these injections. Um, there uh, are some efforts to replace retinal cells that have died. Uh, these cells won't um, regenerate on their own, uh, but uh, using stem cell technology, uh, there's hope that we can, uh, we can replace them. Uh, and there's some evidence from um, mouse experiments and also some uh, small uh, clinical trials that uh, these stem cells can be uh, safely uh, surgically implanted in the eye and uh, some hint that they may be uh, beneficial uh, but it's uh, it's early days with these stem cells, so it's, mm -hmm. these therapies are not available outside a clinical trial. Uh, and I would warn patients not to get any kind of stem cell therapy that is not in a clinical trial uh, registered with the government on the website, clinicaltrials.gov, uh, because there have been some um, unscrupulous practitioners who have given stem cell treatments uh, at a high price and uh, uh, patients have lost a lot of vision because these uh, treatments were not uh, adequately tested for their safety. Wow. Um, we have a question that I think is pretty interesting. We've never really addressed this. Um, uh, listeners wondering now that more people are getting shingles viruses and she's heard that, you know, shingles can develop near the eye. She's wondering, is there anything good or bad about a shingles vaccine in terms of, uh, a, you know, developing AMD or AMD getting worse? Like she just wants to know, is there something, is there a connection or no connection between the shingles virus and, uh, managing AMD? Well, uh, it's an interesting question. There's, there's no known connection uh, between the virus and uh, AMD, but it certainly is true that shingles uh, can affect the eye in a, in a very serious way. Um, it's it's um, most likely to happen if the patient has a rash on their face uh, that involves the tip of the nose. That if it's on the tip of the nose, it's likely that it's also going to be affecting the eye. Uh, so for patients who have um, a rash on the face, um, they, they also need to see an ophthalmologist to uh, check whether they're developing shingles in the eye, and then they might need some treatment uh, for the eye 
to to address the uh, the virus uh, infection in the eye. Uh, so the vaccine uh, is recommended uh, for um, the elderly population. Uh, definitely ask uh, your primary care doctors uh, about it uh, because shingles in the eye, again, can be uh, really an awful thing, lead to uh, some vision loss uh, and pain. And shingles anywhere on the skin is, uh, is very painful. Uh, and uh, you, you really want to uh, avoid it. Uh, so, so the vaccine is uh, is recommended for for uh, most uh, most older older people. Well, great, thank you. That's re it's really helpful, Dr. Deneff. Before um, as we you know wrap up this call, I was wondering if you have you know in the, the years you've been doing research and involved in in vision health, is, is there sort of one big thing you've learned or one thing you'd wish that uh, all your, you know, uh, patients at, at Penn Med knew or people on the call, do you have sort of a, a piece of advice or, or a lesson or observation uh, that you can share with, with the audience to kind of close out today's discussion? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question, Michael. Um, one, one thing I've, I've noticed is uh, when patients come in, they're, uh, they've received the diagnosis of macular degeneration, uh, and they're terrified. And justifiably so, they uh, they think they're uh, going to go blind and uh, and quickly. Um, and uh, the first thing I like to do is reassure them that uh, they're probably not going to go blind uh, and and not quickly. So the 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 macular degeneration um, only affects the center of the retina, the macula, and not the peripheral retina in the vast majority of patients. So uh, in the worst case, where patients have a lot of damage in macula of both eyes, they keep their peripheral vision, which enables them to, uh, to get around carefully, um, to, to see uh, objects, uh, not, not, with, not with high um, clarity, but they can see uh, objects, and uh, they can read uh, a little bit if, uh, if letters are magnified a lot. Uh, using that peripheral vision. Um, so they're not going to go uh, kind of black blind with no, no light perception. Um, also, many patients with early macular degeneration are never going to lose much vision, if any. Uh, so especially if they adhere to uh, the healthy lifestyle uh, issues that we were talking about, uh, not smoking, uh, eating a diet that's rich in uh, whole foods, plant-based, plant uh, green leafies, fruits, vegetables, uh, and fatty fish twice a week. Uh, they're, um, they're, they're not at high risk for losing vision, uh, especially if they don't have very many drusen or very large drusen. Uh, the ophthalmologist will follow the size and number of drusen over time and can let patients know uh, what their uh, risk is based on that. Uh, but uh, again, uh, many patients are going to be able to keep good vision for their whole life. Uh, and the, um, the advent of, of new therapies for patients who do develop advanced macular degeneration, either wet or geographic atrophy, is also protective. These uh, drugs that we can inject into the eye 
every month or now maybe as uh, infrequently as every four months with this new drug, uh, perisimab, assuming it's going to be uh, FDA approved this year, um, can can help maintain uh, pretty good vision for for uh, quite a while, if not for the patient's in, entire life. Well, that's great. Now, I appreciate you putting this into perspective and something that is in one level reassuring, but also uh, I think you made it clear how how much the patient needs to to follow uh, best practices and healthy uh, healthy lifestyle and, and the recommendations from their from their physicians. I appreciate you putting it in uh, in that context. And uh, Dr. Danaf, I just want to thank you so much. I know you've been a uh, a, a regular uh, voice for us here at Bright Focus, and I think uh, on behalf of our audience, just thank you so much for uh, giving us hope for for future research, but also um, reminding people this is this is a, a pretty important topic to to manage well every day. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure, uh, and thank you for providing the opportunity to get accurate information out to patients and. Also for the uh, the funding that Brett Focus provides to our researchers on macular degeneration to help develop that that next generation of, of treatments. Well, that's great. Now, thank you. It's an exciting time in the field of science to to save sight. So, this concludes today's Bright Focus chat. And on behalf of uh, Dr. Janaev and all of us here at Bright Focus, thank you for being with us today. Goodbye. The information provided in this recording is a public service of Bright Focus Foundation and is not intended to constitute medical advice. Please consult your physician for personalized medical, dietary, and or exercise advice. Any medications or supplements should only be taken under medical supervision. Bright Focus Foundation does not endorse any medical products or therapies.